What is the Podcast of Matrix? The Podcast of Matrix is your source for podcast media hosting. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. You may wonder what it's like to be competitive with your dog while keeping them motivated in good physical condition and trained across multiple venues. I've admired Sandy Gans's ability to have versatile dogs who have competed in obedience, tracking, agility, herding, and confirmation. During this interview, we will also talk about how to follow your dreams, how to stay focused on your goals, how to maintain your own self-care, and the importance of keeping your dog's condition for competition. When I think about the important people who helped me over the years, I think of the very first person I spoke with when I was 24 years old. I had just moved out on my own and realized I wanted a dog to do things with. I had no idea what those things were, but I was told to call a lady named Sandy Gans. She gave me resources to get started, including where to go for obedience training classes and names of local breeders so I could find a puppy. Besides being my first contact in the dog community, I learned from the sidelines by watching Sandy as she competed in obedience trials, and I learned important lessons about what it takes to make it in the very competitive world of dog obedience. I'm honored to have this conversation with our guest, Sandy Gans. Sandy, good evening, and thanks for joining me for this podcast. Good evening, Allison. Thank you for asking me to be a part of your podcast. Well, you've been an important part of my dog show life for, I don't even want to say how many years that is. <laughs> and uh, so I really wanted you to be my first guest. So I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. So when you think about it, Sandy, what first got you started with dogs in your life? I grew up in New York City. And as a young child, I, I had my own dog. But I was lucky enough to live on a small working dairy farm for several summers with my family. I have no doubt that those early childhood experiences really helped shape my deep love and respect for animals. So then you fast forward to my husband enrolling in an obedience class with our first Sheltie. He had never owned a pet before, so we researched the breed very carefully, considering the fact that he'd never owned a pet. Eventually, we decided that a Shetland Sheepdog would make a good house pet, a good lap dog, and it would be ideal for us. While he was going to class, and I, went, I did go with him every single week, it didn't take long for me to become completely fascinated and captivated by the training process he and our little pup were experiencing. She was, without a doubt, becoming a better-behaved family member. Could I ask what was fascinating? What grabbed you when you started obedience class? 
the process of taking a raw dog, a pet, and and giving it information methodically and training it on a daily basis and have it understand and learn. They're learning our language and our ways. We don't know their language, but we're, we're inflicting ourselves on them, if you will, and teaching them the ways of our world and adapting them to our way of living. I find that fascinating every day to this day. And Sydney, your husband, you said was mesmerized by the dog obedience world too, right? Yes. He participated. He he trained and showed uh, more than one dog to advanced titles, to the most advanced obedience title. There is obedience trial champion and uh, helped me for many, many years by eyeballing me as I trained almost every single day of the week. And what I think about when you say eyeballed, you know, your your husband really was instrumental in a lot of the dog obedience trials that I saw. He would set up camcorders ringside, and he would watch everything you did in the ring, and then you would go back and observe what you did so you could make those corrections. Yes, it's very important to have somebody who you trust and who's going to be very honest with you and to and somebody who knows exactly what you want. We're talking about precision here. Obedience, AKC, American Kennel Club Obedience, is about precision. And at the same time, you want it to look natural and you want it to be fun. So you really need somebody to watch you, to see what you're doing, to know what you're aiming for, and to be able to give you the information so that you can take it to your next training session. I know how important that is. And Sandy, you have had so many achievements over the years, including, I'm just looking at this list. You trained and showed six Shelties in American Kennel Club or AKC Obedience Trial Championships. You trained and showed three Shelties to American Kennel Club Tracking Dog Excellent Titles. We'll talk a little bit about that in detail later. You trained and showed two Shelties in AKC Master Agility Championships. You served on AKC's tracking advisory and obedience advisory committees. You also dabbled in herding trials and confirmation shows. And you also continuously show in obedience and agility. Is there anything else you want to add? That's a that's a really respectable that's, that's list of accomplishments. That's a lot. That's, that's impressive. A lot, I realize, but it's over a very long period of time. We got started in dogs, as they say, in 1965. So we've been at it for a long time, and I'm, I've always been passionate about what I've been doing. That's the bottom line. And when you say passionate, I remember you talking to me about versatility and how important having a versatile dog is to you. How did this evolve, and what challenges and accomplishments have you experienced by having this focus? For some, I don't know why, but I always believed in what I at one time called the multifaceted dog. Now, mind you, uh, I do AKC sports, so when I started training and showing in obedience and then after a while in tracking, training, tracking, and going to tests, those were the only two venues that were available 
through the American Kennel Club, and they've certainly expanded the list of uh, accomplishments that a person can work toward in the past many years. I was interested in the multifaceted dog. I wanted always to engage in more than one activity because it's fun. And it's not only fun, but it also keeps us fresh by doing more than one thing together. We're not a one-trick pony, so to speak. We can do more than one thing together. If I'm frustrated with the way my dog is trialing in obedience, I always have agility to fall back on, and vice versa. If I'm frustrated by agility, I have obedience to fall back on these days to train, to trial, to enjoy, and then I can go back to whatever it was I left behind. I really enjoy having a dog do more than one thing with me. It increases our bond, and it develops our relationship to an even greater level. Isn't it similar to what we do with ourselves, with people? It's nice to be focused in one area, but it's also nice to have a variety of different activities to to participate in. Well, you and I might feel that way, Allison, but I don't think, you know, a lot of people honestly feel that way. A lot of people want to dedicate themselves to one venue or to one idea or whatever it might be and live that way. And that's that has never really been me. I've always liked I've always liked to do more than one thing at a time. I've been multitasking for a lot of years. <laughs> One thing I do want to point out to everybody is that in 1993, you did something very, very important by creating the American Shetland Sheepdog Association's Versatility Award. So you've been administering that for 19 years, is that correct? Well, I did administer it. I haven't done it in the past few years. I administered it from 1993, you know, for 19 years after that, and someone else is doing it at this time. That was very important to me. I think that national breed clubs become very focused on one thing, and I felt that was the case with the American Shetland Sheepdog Association. And I wanted them, I wanted somehow, in some way, to tweak their minds so they would think about more than just showing in confirmation, that they would have a goal that they could aim toward, and that would require them to at least get past the most elementary level of herding and performance events or agility and confirmation. So I had a method to my madness in creating the program. Well, and I have to, I don't know whether you know this, I know you you know that I earned the Versatility Award champion with one of my Shelties, and, you know, that was very hard. I have to say, he had his confirmation championship and his obedience, but it was the hurting. It was that last piece that was very, very difficult. Right, and sometimes we end up doing things with those dogs if we're aiming toward a particular award, let's say, then we might do things that they might not be particularly good at. And I had a very similar experience to yours. I had an obedience trial champion who qualified for versatility excellent with the American Shetland Sheepdog Association, but he didn't have hurting it, and it was not his forte, but he did it anyway. So I'm going to share something with you, Sandy, and I think that you probably know what I'm going to say. I won't tell all the secrets because we went and took hurting lessons together, but 
my dogs actually taught me how to herd, you know, how to teach them to herd. I had to stand out of the way because those sheep kept butting up against the back of my legs. And, you know, my dog really has to, had to use his obedience, but I had to teach him how to use his own instincts. It was a very interesting, uh, you know, I just got the basic herding title with my dog, but it was fascinating to learn how to get out of the way to help my dog use his instincts. And really, what we did, because I did basically the same thing. I never got past the most elementary level in herding. But what we did was introduce ourselves to what the dogs are saying and learning their language and sort of tweaking their behavior so that it it would fit our game plan, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I actually had a really good time. I, you know, I enjoyed <laughs> watching and also tripped over some... Uh, sheep and some other things along yes. the way. It's a little embarrassing, but now one of the things that was very, very important is tracking for you, but I'm not sure all the listeners know what tracking is. Would you mind giving a brief summary of what, we, what is tracking? Well, American Kennel Club tracking is kind of a stylized search and rescue. Someone will go out in a field at your direction or you know, let's say if you're training, tracking, and they will walk naturally, and they'll also graph, chart where they've walked, if they can, you know, down to the last footstep so that they know precisely where they've walked. At the most elementary level, a TD, tracking dog title, requires a dog to make two turns right angle, I don't think they have to be right angle turns, maybe they do have to be right angle turns, and the track has to be 440 to 500 yards long, and it has to be a minimum of 30 minutes old. In other words, from the time that the track layer, the person who walks the track, started it until the dog starts finding out where that person walked there has to be at least a half an hour span of time up till two hours. At the very end of that track uh, of 440 to 500 yards, they would lay down an article, let's say a glove or a sock or whatever. And the dog, again, has to follow the track within reason, make the turns and identify the article. It has to actually identify the article. That's basically, very sketchily, though, a tracking dog title. And that is basically using their instinct, right? You, Yes, it is. They're, you're using their fantastic ability to smell things that we can't even begin to imagine. But you're finding out how to get them to do it is the trick. Mm-hmm. We use food motivation. We would put food drops in every footstep on tiny tracks to begin with, maybe only six-yard tracks with a piece of food, let's say hot dog or cheese, string cheese, in each footstep. And we would start with very small tracks and elongate them as the dog was able to succeed and as it was able to push forward. So that's one way of doing it. There are many ways of teaching a dog to track. I had one dog who was not interested in food. He didn't care. He was obsessed with his tennis ball. And so I showed him the tennis ball as I walked out and laid his track and then took him out and 
he learned on very short tracks that he was going to find his tennis ball <laughs> at the end, and we'd play with it. And I would just elongate the tracks over time, and eventually he did run a 440 to 500-yard track that was at least a half an hour old, and there was no tennis ball at the <laughs> end, but we were sure to get one to him mighty quick after that. So it sounds like you had fun. It was a very positive reinforcement kind of training, right? Well, it is, yes, and you're outdoors, so that's good, too, because it's fun to be outdoors and be in the elements and do something that's a little more natural for your dog than some of the other things we do. So, Sandy, you wrote a very successful book, which ended up being a a training DVD called Training from the Ground Up. How did you come up with the idea to write this book? I co-authored the book with Susan Boyd. We had tracked together for a number of years. And at one point, we decided that we wanted to document some of the knowledge that we had acquired. We thought that perhaps, if it turned out right, we might be able to turn our brainstorming sessions into something worth sharing. And it was a long process. We, she would come over here to my house, and we'd sit and talk about tracking and talk about how we accomplished it with our dogs, how we were certain that they were going to be able to accomplish each individual goal, how we helped them, how we solved problems. And by golly, eventually it turned out to be a book which we wrote and self-published and marketed and surprisingly to us were very successful with. It was a very, very helpful training manual for me when I first learned how to track it. You know, track is tracking is very difficult. My dogs loved it, but it was very systematic. But when they got that glove at the end of the track, there was nothing like that. They were so proud of themselves. Well, as they should be, too, because mm-hmm. you set the scene for them. You tell them it's a great thing that they found this article mm-hmm. at the end of the track. So you mm-hmm. help reinforce their enjoyment of this process, of mm-hmm. this activity. So one of the things, you know, besides tracking and obedience and, you know, I just think when I think of you, Sandy, I think of perseverance. How do you handle the high pressure of sports? Because dog obedience, agility, tracking, anything, there could be ups and downs. How do you handle that? Well, from my first involvement in dog training, I wanted to compete at the top level. I've always been fascinated by top-level performances. I was fascinated by the process of striving for perfection. And at the same time, making the performance look effortless to anybody who would be watching. So it was just a fascination that I had from the get-go. In order to achieve the high titles, the high achievement titles, did you set short-term and long-term goals? Because sometimes it's difficult to follow that, you know, your passion and your dream without setting goals. Did you have something in mind? Well, although I... I may have long-term goals for my dogs and for myself, I have to stay focused on the short term. Our daily lessons, let's say in obedience, are created based on what happened in recent past lessons. In other words, the lesson that I gave my dogs today is based on what occurred yesterday during our lesson, the day before, and also what my nine-year-old dog's performance in the 
ring in the official obedience ring at a trial was this past weekend. So all of our training is based on past performance, so to speak. It's all very incremental. In other words, I teach my dog in obedience to stay in heel position, but I don't walk 20 feet when I get started. I might start with one foot, teaching him all the tiny increments, the minute parts of healing that I want him to understand and repeat that over and over, reward him, praise him, tell him this is what I want when he does it, and then move forward ever so slowly toward perfection in all these tiny increments. It's like chaining a string of pearls together. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get the necklace until you get all the pearls on there, Mm -hmm. but you have to do it one at a time incrementally. And it sounds like you're always having to be in tune with what your dog is telling you by his behavior, correct? Yes, always, Allison. That's the key element, staying connected and engaged with your dog. It's almost like there's a thread between the two of you when you're working together. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And nothing can interfere with that thread. I've had people try to talk to me when I'm training, and I have to apologize later because I've ignored them. I've locked them out. I'm now in the bubble with my dog, Mm -hmm. and I can't discuss anything. I can't even say yes or no. Mm -hmm. But I, I... have to then apologize. I'm sorry that I could not talk to you, but I was in the bubble with my dog. No, exactly. And that's what because we talk about the with other mindfulness. Part, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I disengage, I'm giving him permission to disengage. Mm-hmm. And really, I don't want that. I want him to remain focused on me 100%. So imagine if he's looking at me and I turn to talk to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I'm not validating our relationship, our engagement. Mm-hmm. And I think of mindfulness, you know, we hear a lot about the importance of uh, staying connected with people when we talk to people, and it's just as important as doing the same with our dogs. Yes, because dogs really don't understand if you say, just a minute, I need to answer this person. Mm -hmm. They don't get that. Mm -hmm. They just know that you disengaged, Mm -hmm. and maybe you're giving me permission to do the same thing, which is exactly what you don't want. Mm -hmm. So what are your tips for how, you know, there are things that happen at a dog show that are really outside of our control. Are there any tips for how to stay focused? I practice staying focused all the time. Every single day when I'm training my dogs, I'm practicing staying focused. I don't let myself think about anything except what we're doing at that moment, what he's telling me he understands in his lesson. If I practice it in training, then I'll be able to pull it off in a trial. And it's not an easy accomplishment. It's really difficult to force yourself to stay focused, to stay in the moment. That's the, those are the words, to stay in the moment. I just had someone today tell me about an activity they were engaging in with a dog when they let their mind wander for a minute and things went sour immediately. I've experienced the same thing where I'll let something creep into my head while I'm in a performance with a dog and I'll have to mentally tell myself, slap myself mentally and say, wait a minute, you're doing this right now. This is where you are. In this very moment, you're not 30 seconds ahead. 
You have to practice that. It's a discipline. It is a discipline, and it's something that when I'm working with clients, I tell people about mindfulness all the time. And we live so much in the future, you know, we lose the present if we're paying too much time, you know, focusing on whatever might happen or is going to happen. And I, I've participated in obedience trials. I've, I've shown in different competitions. And I know what anxiety before you go in the ring feels like. And so if I'm contemplating what my dog may possibly do in the ring, I'm creating that anxiety, which kind of went down the lead to my dog. And then he started at, you know, acting kind of squirrely. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, there's one other point, too, Allison, just to give you an example, learning to focus. I used to tell students when I was teaching that before they ever pick up the leash to train their dog on a daily basis to sit down at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee, a pen, and a piece of paper, and to write out what they want to accomplish, what they expect to accomplish in that particular training session. Pre-plan it. Be realistic. Look for improvement, no matter how tiny it might be. If you set your goals If you have them written down every single day and you can refer to them during the course of the training session, you are going to be better able to stay focused with your dog because you have to stay in a good humor when you're training too. You can't get crabby. You can't get angry. You can't get frustrated. You have to stay in a very neutral, happy mode in order to accomplish anything. And what I'm hearing you say, too, Sandy, is that, you know, if you look at the end product without paying attention to the little things along the way and the little successes, you know, the incremental steps that you take, you do your dog a disservice by not praising those little steps along the way. Exactly, yes. So when you think about all of your your year's training, what has brought you the most satisfaction? I think that... The most satisfaction I have gotten has been in being able to read my dogs, being able to read dogs, generally speaking, to understand what their behaviors mean, to be able to communicate them, to understand how to communicate with them. It's complicated and it's simple all at the same time, but... I really feel as if uh, that might be the greatest thing that I've gotten out of all these years of training. Well, that's an important lesson. And thanks for, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. Do you know at the very beginning when you're going to get a puppy that that is going to be your goal? Yes, because basically we're going to do what I'm interested in right now, although you have to limit it sometimes because, as I said, I did have a dog at one time who didn't have any real interest in herding, but I wanted to accomplish that because I wanted the VCX, the American Shelton Sheep Drug Association VCX. So he did it at the most elementary level, and he didn't do a really good job. But nevertheless, we did accomplish it. I choose which activities we're going to do by what I'm interested in, by what his abilities are. Um, As an example, my youngest dog comes from a line of excellent agility dogs and is a natural for this sport. So as much as I'm teaching him about agility, he at the same time is teaching me about running the kind of dog I have never run before, a pocket rocket. 
So this is an entirely new experience for me. He's ready to shoot to the moon from the get-go, and I have to learn how to handle that, shape it, and try to be successful with it. And hang on for the ride, probably. And hang on for the ride, (laughs) yes. I remember running a golden retriever in agility, and he was so fast. And we would be out at Purina first thing in the morning when there was dew on the ground, and he would go one way because he was so fast. I would go the other way, and I'd just end up on the ground. Everybody would laugh. You know, I'd, I wouldn't qualify, but it was it was kind of one of those things that happens. And, you know, not everything always goes as planned, right? But that's just exactly. life. Do you have any blooper moments you'd like to share? Oh, the one that always comes to mind for me is my experience with the dog who was not a very good tracking dog. He was an outstanding obedience dog, and he had a little bit of agility in his life, and he was a pretty darn good tracking dog. So I had trained him to track from the time he was about eight weeks old. At one point, he was ready for his advanced title, his tracking dog excellent title, which was the highest title at the time in AKC tracking. And we went to Kansas City to a wonderful wildlife preserve, where we were going, where we had entered a test, and uh, it had snowed the night before. There was about a foot of snow on the ground, and when we got to the area where my track was for my dog, the judges pointed out the starting flag and said, you know, whenever you're ready, go ahead, and I was in my own little world, got my dog's leash walked forward and fell flat on my face because I didn't realize there was a foot of snow at that moment (laughs) and the ground was not where I thought it was. Well, hopefully you were okay. I was fine and dandy. He, I got up. I don't think he knew that I had fallen and we went ahead and he aced his track. He was a good boy. (laughs) I have fallen down so many times doing agility. It's, it's, it got to be embarrassing, but on the other hand, there there's something that I really want to make sure that I cover tonight on talking to you, Sandy, is because you were such an important support when my Golden Retriever charity had a sports injury. And it was at a time when there was not a lot of emphasis on sports medicine and what to do if your dog gets injured. And I remember you told me that sometimes you have to design your own rehabilitation program if one doesn't exist. So this was really good advice, and it helped my dog recover. In fact, I owe a lot to you and your husband, Sydney, because you both graciously offered the use of your outdoor swimming pool so I could swim my dog every day. And this is what helped strengthen her legs, which helped her eventually walk again. First, I have to thank you and your husband, Sydney. That was really, really um, helpful for my dog and for myself. But what led you to even come up with that idea? The idea of, of rehabbing, developing your own rehab program? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the dog that I've been talking about was 10 years old in 2000, and he was just beginning his agility career when he suffered an FCE, fibrocartilaginous embolism, which essentially made him lame on his right rear leg. At the time, in 2000, there was not a lot of information available on FCE, and I had to email people that I I met one time who I thought may be able to shed a little light on how I could rehab him, and I did have the pool in my backyard, and I bought a wetsuit. This was in September of 2000. 
bought a wetsuit so that I could swim him every single day. I developed a program for him. I heard that if you didn't have the dog basically rehabilitated within, I don't remember the period of time, but it was very short, that the body would not be able to regenerate good muscle or whatever it needed. I didn't know what FCE was, and I really didn't know anything except my dog was lame and I was going to help him. The best way I knew how to regain his ability to get around. So he walked back and forth on the long step of my pool every single day, We used treats to get him to walk back and forth, and I swam him with a jacket on, a life jacket, so that he could use that leg, and it was really non-weight-bearing exercise that I designed for him. The idea may have been instigated by somebody's discussion with me or some other such thing, but I had to take the situation into my own hands in order to help him. Well, and I appreciated you sharing that information with me when my dog had a partial stroke and couldn't walk. She was getting better in other ways, but she couldn't walk. And you called and said, this is what I think you should do. And I did it. And she eventually was able to walk again. Besides the injuries, though, I think that what I notice about about you, Sandy, and, and Sydney, keeping your dogs in condition is really important. So you do this regardless of whether a dog's injured, right? Exactly, yes. Shelties don't like to swim, so forget that. You know, none of the dogs that I have now is going to go in the water. It's a rarity that a Sheltie will voluntarily go in the water. But there are other things that you can do. You can, I can walk my dogs. I can take them to a very large acreage fenced area that I know of where I can let them run and just be dogs and decompress, defuse, run naturally sniff and be a dog, and that helps too. I try to give them as many opportunities as I can to just be dogs. The other important things are having a veterinarian who understands what you do if you're in performance events. My dogs are pro athletes, and think of all that pro athletes have to do to keep themselves in shape and to stay in shape. And so now it's my responsibility to be able to keep my dogs in good shape with good vet care, to keep them well hydrated when they're performing, which isn't always easy. It may sound easy, but sometimes dogs don't want to drink, so you have to invent ways for them to drink water so they stay hydrated. Don't overfeed, don't underfeed, watch them carefully, make sure that their mental state is positive, that they're happy with themselves, that they trust you. All these things are really important. And to keep them on a really good diet so that they're fit and they're in top-notch health. So basically the same things that we would do for ourselves. We have to pay attention and help our dogs. I have worked out with a Uh, personal trainer for more years than I can even remember. My husband and I have always done some kind of physical training for as long as I can remember, truly. So the personal trainer with whom I work out knows that I run agility and that I do obedience. She knows the things that I do that could be destructive to my body. And so she helps strengthen those parts of my body. She's really responsible for my well-being, largely responsible for it. 
And I try to stay on a good diet. I should say that, too. I have a sizable sweet tooth, which is difficult to control. (laughs) But I try to eat well. I try to stay hydrated and uh, just stay fit. Well, and you mentioned, Sandy, the importance of having good communication with your dog's veterinarian. And I think that's going to be a future podcast episode where we talk about that because that is very important. And the fact that we keep everybody on the same page. Yes, I'm very lucky, and as you are, we use the same veterinarian who uh, is familiar with dog sports and understands what we do and the toll that it takes on our dogs or could take on our dogs. You know, there's one other thing that I wanted to add, Allison, which is very important that I think a lot of people forget. People who are interested in performance sports and who are deeply entrenched in it forget to take time off. Mm. It's really important Mm -hmm. to have Mm downtime, you know, maybe two weeks or even a month to get away from the intensity of training and showing and just to enjoy being with your dog and them enjoy being with you every single day. I found that that downtime ultimately refreshes and renews both my energy and spirit and their energy and spirit. That's really good advice for us, you know, even in our work world, to take times off and appreciate just not having to do anything. But our dogs, that's very important, Sandy, is that our dogs need that same kind of relief from being in that pressure to continue the ongoing training, right? Well, yes, and I think the problem is that some people might tend toward looking at their dogs as an object they're not objects, they're living beings, and they really need exactly what we need, the same kind of care. So, you know, that led me down kind of into a rabbit hole. I won't go too far. I'll try to pull myself back because one of the things that's very hard when you spend so much time on training and your dog is doing well in the ring is when to decide that, ugh, they don't, they don't look like they're enjoying it as much. So maybe I better look at another activity or decide to retire them. But that's a whole other topic. That's that's a yes, it is, and I'm facing that because I have a nine-year-old dog who's been doing obedience since he was four, and it isn't his favorite activity. He would sell his little soul for agility any day or night of the week, but obedience is not his very favorite, and we still do it. And he enjoys it, but it doesn't really turn him on, as they say. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at how to reconstruct what we do together or how to leave this one activity. How are we going to leave it? When are we going to leave it? Mm -hmm. In the pretty near future. Again, he's nine, and he deserves my consideration. He's given me so much. So it's constantly observing and reassessing and then deciding which way to go. Always. Okay. Always, yes, because they can't tell us. Mm -hmm. They're not capable. We have to be able to look in their faces and see what their body language is. We have to be in touch with them. So, Sandy, you've given so much important information tonight. What is your vision moving forward? For my almost nine-year-old dog, I want us to be just for the brief time that we're going to continue in obedience to have a little more consistency and perhaps the same in agility in our trial performances and to continue enjoying one another. He's a love of a dog, and I just simply want us to be able to enjoy one another for as long as possible. My three-year-old dog, 
Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward, I'd love to see us become a team in some part of the dog sport world. <laughs> <laughs> and to keep building our bond and our relationship, as I said, he's a whole other ball of wax, <laughs> and I need to learn what he needs to be a successful partner. I have to figure out what to communicate to him. What does he need to be a successful partner in competition? It sounds like kids, right? Not everybody Very is much, made yes. the same way. Yes. So is there anything else you'd like to share, Sandy? Well, I would like to say to your audience, Allison, that if they've never tried any aspect of dog training, there's an entire menu of available venues available today. And you can figure out what you and your dog can have fun doing together. Find a class, give it a try. And I think that I know that you'll find that training will without a doubt, enhance your relationship into a very special bond. Sandy, thank you so much for your time. I really have had a fun time talking to you tonight. Thank you, Allison, for asking me. I've had a really great time chatting with you. And again, it's a privilege to have you as my first guest after so many years. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Allison. Have a good evening. You too. What a terrific interview with my guest, Sandy Gans. Besides being someone who knows the world of performance events, she values the importance of a well-rounded, versatile approach to training our dogs. This, besides keeping them motivated, makes sure that they enjoy the sport that we're asking them to do. Thanks again, Sandy. I appreciate you spending the time with me tonight. Make sure that you join us for future episodes of the Animal Academy podcast, where we will talk to more professionals in the field of the human-animal connection. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.